Welcome to the Live Your Dance Podcast. My name is Molly King, and I'm a former corporate working girl turned author, dancer, and coach. Each week we come together to celebrate someone who has found their metaphorical dance and listen to their insights in order to inspire you to find and live your dance. Thanks for tuning in and joining me today. Now, let's dance. Hey guys, I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time now. I can't wait to introduce you to my good friend Lou Patterson. He's turned into more of a mentor over the years, and I finally had the chance to sit down and pick his brain about business and about life, how to build good relationships along the way, and even the night that he was held up at gunpoint when he was a teenager, and to hear how that night has affected the entire trajectory for the rest of his life. It's an incredible episode. Lou is a great storyteller, and I'm just so excited for all the wisdom that he shares, especially at the end. He crushes it. So stay tuned, and let's dive in. This is the Live Your Dance Podcast, and I'm here with my good friend, Lou Patterson, and I'm so excited to get to sit in your home, your beautiful home, and talk with you face-to-face. A lot of my interviews I have to do over Skype, but it's just fun to be able to have a real conversation um, in person. So, Lou, I'm really excited that you're on the show with me and get to share some of your amazing stories. I'm happy to do this. Thanks. Of course. So, just to give my listeners an overview, tell me a little bit um, about your business and, and what you do now, but I'd also love to go back and ask about how you got there. But first of all, with your company, tell me about that. Okay. Hopefully I won't give anyone whiplash. <laughs> so I own a business called Category One, and we do kind of consumer insight-driven brand strategy for a variety of businesses We work with everyone from startups to Fortune 500 companies, and I started doing this about 15 or 16 years ago when a friend of mine asked me to help him start a business doing the same thing. (laughs) And I had been on the other side of the desk. I've spent 35 or so years in the sporting goods business. I started off uh, working in one of Nike's first retail stores in Orange County, California, and spent some time in sporting goods retail, starting line sports, a chain of running stores in Southern California called Low Shorns for Runners, which I think eventually wound up with something like 13 stores. This is back in the 70s when running, the running boom was still a big thing. Yeah, yeah. And from that, wound up being VP of sales and marketing for a running apparel company called Sub4, another running apparel company called Moving Comfort. That turned into VP of sales and marketing at ASICS. Oh, wow. This would take us to the mid-80s at this point. (laughs) I subsequently spent time working for a trading company, so I spent a lot of time in Asia and got... Uh, a real education and not just selling shoes, but figuring out how shoes were made. Yeah, that's a whole nother education. Yeah, yeah it was. absolutely. And 
And from there, wound up, I was at Umbro for 10 years. That's right. Uh, which was, I knew nothing about soccer when they hired me, but I knew a lot about shoes. And so I originally was hired there to help them resuscitate what had been kind of a bungled startup footwear business. <laughs> and so I was responsible in the very early days. I was like a one-man shoe company. And I had to re-engineer the production line in their factory that we owned in Brazil. Uh, I designed all of their footwear. Wow. I sold the shoes. So my first day at work, or my first week at work, I had to make a presentation at a sales meeting. <laughs> I hadn't even seen, pro we, and we already knew our product sucked. And I literally got up this back in the days when we wore suits. And I got up in front of the sales force and took off my dress shoe and said, imagine this in the finest kangaroo leather. Imagine this is a, you know, and went on yeah. describing the perfect football boot. <laughs> and said, you know, when I'm here in front of you this time next year, I will be holding that boot in my hand. Ooh, that's and fun. It took a lot of work, but we were able to pull that off. So after about two years, I think, of focusing on helping them build their footwear business, uh, my boss asked me to head up all of product development and all of merchandising for all products across everything the we did. The whole Umbro line. Right. So wow. we did, you know, goalkeeper gloves and shin guards yeah. and footwear and socks and outerwear and, you know, the whole, you know, competition kit and training kit. And it was interesting because knowing nothing about soccer and being surrounded, most of my <laughs> peers were all ex-pros who had oh, played wow. at the highest levels of the game. Wow. And a real learning for me was at one point in time, uh, while I was still focusing in the footwear business, I was completely buried. And I was commuting back and forth from Brazil, where I'd mentioned our factory was. All right. And this is before, this is before, or faxes existed, I think, to think about this, but this was before email, and okay. before, essentially, internet, and so we communicated with factories using telexes. Right, okay. So you had a type, you, you would, you know, let the person at the other end know you were on the line, and then you would type a sentence or two, and that would be repeated at their end, and you got charged by the character. And if I remember <gasps> right, it was 25 cents a character, so it's crazy Whoa, expensive. That's super so expensive. So you, you left out all vowels, and you abbreviated everything. So you're communicating. <laughs> it's like Twitter to a different level. Totally. <laughs> and you're communicating with somebody with whom English is a second or third oh, language, gosh. and an imperfect language at best. So you might be asking for an outsole design change, and when you would get samples two months later, they may have just changed the color of the upper. I mean, oh, it was geez. because the communication was so And telephones weren't... You could do telephones, but it's crazy expensive as well. Yeah. And you're also dealing with time zone differences and True. everything else. Just so many variables. So, well, you know, one side note to that was... You learned how to be very concise and very clear yes. in communicating. Yes. <laughs> but I was, you know, would be completely buried in dealing with staying on top of sales, staying on top of 
inventory and production oh and what guys are doing at the factory. You're a one-man show, but with and so many... I'm totally overwhelmed. And a couple of the guys who had completely unrelated jobs took me to lunch one day and said, you know, you're a distance runner and a bike racer. Those are largely individual sports. Yeah. We're all football players, soccer players. All team-based. All team-based sports. And... One and these guys were both, you know, like again, played at very, very high levels. Wow. And he said one of the things about being on a really good team is we're all there's eleven players in the field and we're all human. So we learn early on if somebody's injured, but you don't want to tell the boss you're injured because that could affect your livelihood. Right. So we would you know, you'd just tell your mates, hey, you know, my knee's really sore, and we would play around that. Yeah. Or you're hungover. And you let your (laughs) mates know, your teammates know, you know, I'm not feeling good today. And you would play around that. Yeah. And a team is way more effective than one person, no matter how good that person is. Absolutely. And we see you killing yourself. You're the first guy here in the morning. You're the last guy here at night. We see you traveling like crazy. We can help you. Let us help you. We're all part of a team. That's huge. That was a huge learning. Yeah. And it's something that's easy to forget because in many corporate environments, people are big at self-promoting. People are big at trying to be heroes. And I think I've learned a long time ago that you can work as a team and accomplish way more with a way way less grief. And everyone looks good. It's true. It's true. I really, yeah, I believe that too where... When one person wins, you know, the whole team can win. But right. it definitely takes a mindset of focusing out on the team right. versus on yourself and your own trajectory and that career path. Right. But, I mean, when I was at um, Decker's where I met you, my team was only four to five people in our internal team. Right. And I felt like we were so much more nimble and responsive and productive as that small team than I could see sometimes at Teva or UGG where they have a huge team, there's just so many things to jump through or things to jump over to get one thing approved, to get one design okayed. And, you know, we could call a team meeting in five minutes and have everyone there, Mm. discuss it, move on, keep going. Right. But I can only imagine, I mean, just how cool it was that the the guys at Umbro brought that to your attention and gave you that feedback. No, it it was really a great thing to become aware of. And, you know, Numbro was an awesome experience. So I, we're, I'm still friends with most of the guys I work with oh, there. Cool. We're, we stay in touch through the miracle of Facebook. Yeah. Um, and we, we scaled quite rapidly. We doubled in size many years in a row. Wow. And when I started working there, I think there might have been 18 employees. <laughs> and when I left, we had many hundreds of employees. Wow. And yet... Our ability to be nimble and our ability to be flexible never really changed that much. Wow. Even as we scaled because these guys took that same teamwork mentality. And even as we changed roles and we went from doing to managing to leading, which are big transitions, they kept that same spirit of teamwork, particularly in that transition from management to leading. Yeah. And... I mean, we were very open and blunt and candid with each other and called bullshit on one another when it was necessary. <laughs> Which, yeah, is, is needed. And, 
And there is a sense, with one or two notable exceptions, there is a strong sense of trust and openness, which yeah. made, you know, even doubling in size every year, you know, and you double from, you know, 80 to 160 million in a year, there's a lot of gro growth pains that oh, come yeah. with that. But I think we were able to deal with it more gracefully than other companies in the same situation because we had awesome leadership mm. from the... Uh, Ian McLaren, who is the, the president, is the, still the best boss I've ever had, wow. or none. It, but all, all of the, our management team, my peers, were, were great people. We all trusted each other. We all liked each other. Yeah. Again, with one or two exceptions. And if you're having a bad day or if something's not working for you, or if you dropped the ball and something got you screwed something up, you could go to those guys and say, hey... I blew this, and I'm going to need your help figuring out how to fix that. Yeah. And there was never any sense of, there was never pointed fingers, uh. never any blame. It was all, we're all in this together, and we're going to fix this together. Wow. And it was still one of the greatest working experiences I've ever had. That's one of yeah. the coolest. I, I have a book in mind a few years down the road, I think, but studying cultures and just how cultures are formed and why some are so more effective than others. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really neat case study in and of itself, as I'm sure you've, as you've done your work with different corporations mm. and, you know, research, you've probably gotten to see into a lot of different company cultures. I don't know if that's necessarily the case where, where that teamwork is so highly valued that it is elsewhere. I think now it's... It feels more separated in a lot of places that I've seen. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I do believe that their culture, I think, is kind of a byproduct of the difference or delta between what leadership says are the values mm. and what actually are the values as expressed by actions. Yeah, and behavior. And a lot of companies will say... People are our most important asset, <laughs> but they don't act that way. Not at all. And they do things every day that that underscore the fact that they don't consider people an asset at all, but a liability. Yeah, or that bottom line is actually the driving force. Right, right. And, and while, of course, the company has to be profitable, you can tell when companies are much more focused on right. yeah, people or culture or product or their craft right. or whatever it is. It's and I, I think decision. as people, when we as individuals engage in situational ethics, it's a slippery slope that's hard to recover from. When large organizations engage in situational ethics, you're sending a very clear and distinct message to your employees, to your customers, to other stakeholders, and it, yet it's really hard. And sometimes practicing what you preach can be short-term expensive, but I think in the long term it... It builds respect and trust, like yeah. you said. Yeah. Which I think, I mean, it just, it shows when, when employees trust their boss or their leadership mm -hmm. and when they don't. Yeah, And I right. mean, you can tell by the murmuring, you can tell by just daily operations what's actually going on when you get the pulse and and the healthy companies end up being profitable in the end i would think yeah and you know have a much longer shelf life than those that don't i think so but well but, tell me because you grew up like you said as a dis long distance runner mm -hmm. and you said a cyclist too yep. 
And so I think that athletic background is also a big part of... I read an article recently actually about how companies should hire collegiate athletes, people who've had whatever it is, some way of that structure and discipline and teamwork and just kind of that that driving ambition or whatever that is that kind of keeps an athlete going past their limits. But do you feel like that's been a helping factor throughout your whole career? I would say it's been an asset, yes. I mean, I, as a distance runner, and I started life as, actually, I started life as a slow sprinter, which <laughs> has a short shelf life. But I discovered my sophomore year in high school, I discovered I had a gift for breathing heavy for a long time. <laughs> And realized that I really didn't have any business being a sprinter, but I, you know, I, so I wound up running the mile through most of, well, all the rest of high school and then all of college. And so mile's pretty pure. It's four laps on a track, and your job is to run those four laps as quickly as possible, and the math is pretty simple. So when I was running, you know, a goal, not necessarily in high school, but by the time you get into college, your goal is try to run sub four minute mile. Right. It's really kind of the the, the ultimate marker, yeah. yeah. And so if you're gonna run a four minute mile, that means you're running each lap in a, at a minute. So your training is to inure your body to the difficulties that come with running four laps in succession without stopping each at sixty seconds. Mm-hmm. So you would do a lot of intervals and you know it, it's a your body, our bodies are an adaptive organism, so you can apply stress to it and it'll adapt to that stress and get stronger and faster. So all of our training was wrapped around doing increments of a mile at four minute pace or usually a little bit faster. Yeah. So you got to where, you know, we do stuff like 20 times a quarter or 20 times, you know, a 440 or one lap of a track and each of those would be under 60 seconds with a very short break. Yeah. Or, yeah, again, there's a million variations of to that thing. Yeah. And so you could measure your, your progress towards running that sub-four-minute mile very clearly by you, know, you do these workouts and then you run a race and see how fast you run. You do more workout and you can see, well, I'm really strong, but I have no leg speed. So you do some workouts to give you some leg speed. Huh. Then you do another race and see how much faster you got. Yeah. And so from that, you're setting goal and setting intermediate goals or milestones and then constantly comparing where am I against this milestone became second nature. Yeah. And, you know, I went to high school. When I was in high school, I ran for this famous Hungarian coach. His name is Mahali Igloy. <laughs> really made he didn't invent interval running but he kind of made it famous and he coached a lot of great milers and other distance runners and by the time I got out of college I was pretty much self-coached coach Igloy wound up leaving the United States and went to Greece where he was the national track coach until he passed away some years ago so as I got out of college and, and decided I wanted to continue pursuing this um, goal of being a better runner, uh, I learned very quickly that a lot of guys would just go out and run every day, and they never got faster. Huh. And, but if you actually set a goal, and as I, when I got out of college, I realized I'd run pretty much as fast as I was going to run as a miler. So I moved up to 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters, 
And again, if you're going to run a fast 10K, that's six miles, and you want each mile to be a certain speed. Yeah. And so your training is, again, very straightforward. So in order to be effective and make the most of your time, you would set milestones and goals, and you would measure yourself against those milestones. So when you get into the working environment, it's the same thing. My first Absolutely. job as a national sales manager was for Sub4. is basically a startup apparel company. We were doing, if I remember right, we were doing maybe a quarter million dollars a year. We had sales guys in three states. So it's a matter of mapping out. Here's where we are today. Here's where we want to be in a year. Mm -hmm. How am I going to do that? Yeah. And it's opening more doors. And where are the most target-rich environments? Mm -hmm. And how am I going to go out and find sales reps to work in those environments right. that are good? And... So it was very easy to create milestones, you know, identify, you know, the best geographies to focus on, identify the best sales reps in those geographies, yeah. you know, figure out how to get myself in front of them and make a pitch on, you know, you really need to come to work for us and here's <laughs> the reason why yeah. and so on. And by the time I left, left Sub4, we were doing like $10 million a year and we had, I think, a total of 60 sales reps in the U.S. Wow. And we were able to do that fairly quickly because it was we had taken the time to sit down and plan out. Here's what I need to do today. Here's what I need to do next week, next yeah. month, next quarter. <clears throat> yeah. So on. Which totally makes sense. I mean, I've seen in my own life and in companies I've worked for and things like that, you see those people who are, who are just going out and running every right. day. Who are just right. doing what they do without you know, that the major outcome at the forefront of their vision and then working towards that every day. Right. But I really think that's actually a key point for a lot of goal setting or for even, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to figure it out by this time. Right. <laughs> and the things I should do before that, you know, could include a lot of things. But right. there's so many different quote-unquote workouts you could do yep. or steps you could take to create that outcome, which I think is a really neat way of looking at it. And just a, a great parallel between how sports, that training, that mental training, right. and then the application later on absolutely fits. And similarly, a person who is, wouldn't be fair to call him a mentor, is more like a surrogate big brother, hmm. was a guy who um, was a former Navy SEAL who I worked with. He was a rep for me was when I was in retail, and then I hired him as a rep. He worked for me for as a sales rep for a number of different oh, wow. companies. And he taught me a lot. And similarly, the people who have military backgrounds also are very, you know, understanding your mission, your objectives, your it's strategy, your tactics. <laughs> yep. Fairly linear, but, you know, more and more. I think the, a lot of military gets a bad rap for being not flexible. Mm -hmm. And I think... And, of course, this guy was a Navy SEAL, and they're uh, not typical of your <laughs> average individual in any way, in shape, any, or form. Yeah, I was going to say, even way. in military, yeah. it's beyond. But, but being able to be, you know, within the scope of the mission, having some flexibility. I mean, he taught me a lot about, and he was really probably the person who helped me understand those attributes that helped make me a reasonably good athlete, also could be translated into attributes that could help me be a reasonably decent business person. Yeah, and that's where I think there's a there's a really cool kind of magical 
intersection that we can find. I remember having a conversation with my boss Anders at UGG, mm-hmm. and he used to play for a band, or I think still does, and he was telling me how he had to really figure out at one point whether he wanted to do full-on 100% band and go for it, or he was part of this growing company called UGG, which ends up being a billion-dollar company, but he was there at the beginning, Mm-hmm. and really trying to figure out, you know, which do I invest in? And he said that the moment he figured out that he could find the music in the work mm-hmm. was when he fell in love with his job. And he was sitting down with me at that point to kind of ask me, you know, what is for me, because dance was my thing, where is the dance in my work right. at that point? And, um, and unfortunately for me, that wasn't the right fit, that the, my dance wasn't in that work. Right. But... Um, I think that's a really cool way to look at it that, you know, whether it's your band or your music or your dance or your running or the military side, you know, I think there's definitely an intersection when you find, you know, the thing you love and sometimes the work that has to pay the bills, but there can be a really beautiful blending of the two that makes it better than just, you know, clocking in and out, punching your card every day. That's very true. And I found, you know, most of my career I've been in a position of, you know, somewhere between management and leadership. And, you know, being a child of the 60s, you know, I think most of our generation at one point felt like our goal in our life was to change the world, make yeah. a difference. Yeah. And at some point in time, most of us became bitter and cynical because we realized we weren't going to make a difference. And I realized that making a difference wasn't, you know, somehow... Man- finding a way to find world peace or curing cancer, but I could make a difference in people's lives. You know, at a very early age, I had a number of people reporting to me, and I've always managed or led people, and I could make a difference in those lives. Yeah. And that, I I realized at some point in time, that that is, is in a little tiny way, I could change a, a little part of the world. Yeah. And, you know, at some point, you know, at any given point in my career, having, I mean, I, I think one of the coolest things is when you can hire someone who is right out of college, they're bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, have a lot of enthusiasm, and they kind of see what they're doing as a job and help nurture that person and lead them to realize that what they're doing could become a career. And from this 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week you're putting in at work, you can actually build life mm-hmm. and have a life outside of work and that becomes a platform for a family and other pursuits and and, and, and to me yeah. that you know kind of helping people see that and make the most of that is far more important than just kind of what you know yeah you know selling more toothpaste yeah yeah it's i mean it elevates it right to a much higher level and I mean, I think just having that scope and that that viewpoint does change it. And I think it's easier as we get further down the road to understand the bigger picture. But I remember when I first got into the work world, it was very much a job. Mm. And it did become more of a career as I let it go that direction. I think it, it just takes a little maturity sometimes to be able to see how this could become the foundation. And, right. and do I want this to be my foundation or maybe it's something else. But right. speaking of affecting other people's lives, one of my favorite stories is how someone deeply affected your life, maybe not in a 
positive way at first, but tell me the story again of, of your coming to a path where there were two roads, and I think you were at end of high school? Yes, I just graduated from high school, so I think the same week I graduated from high school, I competed in the state, tra uh, state track and field championships, I ran the mile and ran a lousy race, but I got fourth. Big deal. So, but it was a big week for me. Yeah. And my parents, who were awesome, my dad was an aerospace engineer who had his own business, and my mom was, as was the norm back in those days, a stay-at-home mom raising five boys. Oh, man. Bless her heart. Yeah, goodness. So they were, enth they were enthused and encouraging that I would have kind of a in you know real job in quotes yeah and so there was a lot of pressure to you know do something like you know be a a lawyer or I, I wasn't going to be a doctor so <laughs> no one ever talked about that but <laughs> they knew there was a, there was a very clear expectation I was going to wear a tie to work every day mm -hmm. and and being the oldest son oh you, know, you were I, the oldest yeah okay. so I felt a duty to kind of Lead. Uh, yeah, kind of set an example for my little brothers and go down that path. And so, because of my running, I'd been offered a lot of scholarships and was had the fortune to be able to go to college for free, which I don't think I truly realized what a gift that was to my parents until much, much later. Yeah, with five kids, too. Of course, back then, college was a lot cheaper, too. But anyway, <laughs> so I had a job through most of high school working in a drive-in dairy huh. by the beach, it was a little bit like a 7-Eleven with really big doors, and people could drive all the way in, you know, only in Southern California, right? Oh, yeah. People drive all the way in, roll down their car window, and say, you know, I need, you know, half gallon of milk, dozen eggs, wow. loaf of bread, quarter <laughs> chocolate chip ice cream, and we'd run around and get all those things, bag it, ring it up in the register, charge them, take their money, and they would drive off. Whoa. It was totally cool. It was a great job. Cool. So... Um, that week at, I graduated, I was working, I was closing the store at night, and as happens often, summertime by the beach in Southern California, it was kind of cool, dank, foggy night, Yeah. you know, after a 90 degree day, <clears throat> and we, it was 10 o'clock at night, time to close the store, I turned off most of the lights, you know, particularly the big lit sign outside, and it had one of my coworkers, there were only two of us in the store at the time, had my coworker going back and face the shelves, so push like all the depleted milk forward. Oh, okay. So, yeah. you know, as you uh, circulate stock and Moving so everything looks full, you know, if you ever worked in a grocery store, it's um, kind of what half the job you're doing is just making just things moving look everything, good. yeah. So, so he was in a big walk-in freezer doing that and I was getting ready you know was, we had like a whole routine right the whole and so yeah I was filling up mop buckets to mop the floors mm -hmm. and doing all these other things <clears throat> the first thing I should have done and didn't was clean out the register but you know I'd gotten into kind of lazy habits so anyways so, uh, as I'm running around doing all this stuff this guy walks in because we had left the doors partly open because we had to walk in and out you're dragging in signs oh, right. and doing all this stuff. So this guy walks in, he was like in jeans, no shirt, a jean jacket, barefoot, 
which, you know, again, in 1970 in Southern California is not an unusual attire. Mm -hmm. Although he he was somewhat unkempt looking. So I said, sir, we're closed. You're going to have to leave. I'm sorry. Come back tomorrow. We open at 6. And the guy pulls out a chrome-plated 45 and declares he's, you know, robbing us. So and you're like 17? I'm 18 like years old. Yeah. So I kind of croaked, and <laughs> and I was kind of a smart ass. I still am. I just control it a little <laughs> bit better now. The filter. <laughs> so I kind of made some comment. I can't even remember what I said. And he then aimed his 45 at me and said, I'm serious. Empty the register. And at that point, I realized that... Uh, you know, we could be in trouble. Yeah. So I went over the register, there were two registers side by side. I opened both of them. There were a couple hundred bucks in both of them. Pulled all the money out. Asked him if he wanted all the change. And he got really annoyed. And so then I reached for a bag. And back in those days, they had these white freezer bags. Oh, so you yeah. put your ice cream in it. Mm-hmm. They were allegedly a bit more insulated than the regular brown paper yeah. bag. So I asked him if he wanted the money, because whenever anyone would order ice cream or anything cold, you would ask him, it was reflexive, you wanted a white bag or a brown bag. Yeah. So the guy's like, put the money in a bag, stop screwing around. So I said reflexively, you want it in a white bag or a brown bag? And he got really mad. He oh, grabbed geez. me by my hair, pulled my head back, stuck a forty-five in my mouth, and said, I will kill you. And I almost peed myself. Well, yeah. And then got really serious. So at some point, he pulled the gun back out of my mouth, gave me more instructions, had me close the doors all the way. At that point, he started thinking. He's like, is there anyone else in the building? Yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, there's a guy in the walk-in freezer. And he said, take me back there. So he had the gun at my back. I walked back, opened the door, and I didn't know what to say. I'm like, John, there's a guy here to see you. (laughs) And the, the robber pushed me out of the way and pointed the gun at John and said lay in the ground and John fainted and collapsed. <laughs> so the <laughs> robber thought that was kind it. of funny. Yeah. So Jeez. he then closed the freezer door with John inside, put a couple of boxes in front of the door to make it hard for him to get out. And he marched me back over to the, where the registers were and told me to lay in the floor with my hands behind my head. Dang. So I thought, I'm being executed. Holy shit. Yeah. So I complied with his instructions, and he said, I want you to count from 100 to 0 backwards out loud, and if you tell anyone what I look like, I will kill, come back and kill you. I'm like, yes, sir, anything you say, sir. So I'm laying on the floor face down going, you know, 199, and I could have sworn I heard him run away. So I reached up and hit the alarm button, and I look up, and he's standing right in front of me, holding at me, and... Again, another moment where I thought I'm going to get killed. And the guy just cussed and ran off. Whoa. So the police show up. And one of the police officers who, you know, was taking the report said, Son, I get shot at for a living and I wouldn't work here. Oh, jeez. This is a crazy place. And apparently they had a, quite a history of being robbed. Oh, wow. So, so that led me to realize that life is very fragile. And although you think you're on a path and you have plans and you kind of have things charted out, some completely unexpected 
thing can take place and completely yeah. throw your plans the to the wind. Yeah. So I realized that I needed to live my life on my terms. So I wound up not pursuing a law degree, which is probably <laughs> best for the entire world. And, wow. you know, I did not have kind of a traditional plan. And I think that my life has been better because of that. Hmm. And I... And I wouldn't say, you know, any part of, you know, developing a career or any part of my life has been random. But I take every day as if it's a gift and try to make the most out of what I get presented with, be it a challenge or a gift. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking back on that, that was some 40 years ago, you know, I think... You know, I, I make the comment to my wife periodically, and she always doesn't like me putting it in these terms, but if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, I feel like I've been very blessed and very gifted in what I've been able to experience over the last 40 years. Yeah. I have, you know, a number of friends who I cherish dearly, and... I feel like I've been able to make an impact in a number of people's lives and careers. Definitely. And I have a wife that loves me, which is very reciprocated. And I think all of that adds up to something. Yeah. And again, I feel very blessed. So, I'm, so I, I do feel like you know, particularly, you know, the theme of, of your book, Live Your Dance, you know, I, it very much resonates with me because I feel like people have this tendency to go into life wanting everything mapped out yeah. or not knowing at all where they're headed or what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of living life in your terms is to understand yourself first and know who you are and know what's important to you. Yeah. And I mean we we all have a tendency to run towards things we want. The shiny things. Yeah. yeah. Instead of things you need. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I have a number of people I talk with a lot who, you know, vacillate back and forth between feeling the need to climb a corporate ladder, but yet at the same time, you know, be a husband and a dad and <clears throat> fulfill those roles. Yeah. And I think you have to, well, you can kind of do both. I think you have to decide which of those two are most important. Right. I, I think at some point there is, there's got to be some moment when you really do decide that for yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm sure everyone has that. Right. But I think, and I wouldn't even say, I mean, I, I agree that you've been blessed with this life experience, but at the same, on the same token or however we say it, life hasn't happened to you. No, that's very true. You know, you've been a, a very 
thoughtful, intentional person with how you've been going about making each decision, taking each step. And right. each company you've worked for has definitely built itself in a direction that has led you to now being able to run your own business right. and and have that freedom of lifestyle that you have. And granted, you're busy and you're still traveling all the time. Right. But it it feeds the lifestyle that you've chosen for yourself. Right. You're not stuck. You're not wearing a tie right now. Right. <laughs> I can I, attest I, to that. I couldn't tell you the last time I had a tie on. As a Which is fact. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I think all of it does culminate in this is the life that you've created. If your right. life were a canvas, right. I mean, you've, you've thoughtfully placed, you know, this masterpiece that you've now created. It's not, you know, a passive thing. Right. But... I'm sure we all go through both both stages of having sure. things mapped out and not knowing what the heck and sure. how this is going to happen. And um, you know, there was a lot of on my part. There was a lot of trial and error along the way. You know, I I've taken a job that was purely just for the money, mm -hmm. and realized that there there is such thing as selling your soul to the devil. <laughs> yeah. And and that was a mistake. I hope I will only make once. I, I believe that. And, you know, and I've gone to work for crazy people, and I've gone to work with for pathological liars, and I hope not to make that mistake again, mm -hmm. although it's sometimes hard to discern. Well, yeah, I mean, you can be a great judge of character, and yet people still... Right. You know. No, there, there are... Let's just say there's a lot of different kinds of people out there. Again, I think if you're aware of yourself and what you need... And mm -hmm. what a longer-term goal is, it makes a number of decisions because you you will often encounter various decision points along the way. But if you're aware of what your, your bigger goal is, it yeah. makes it a lot easier to make an informed, intelligent decision. Yeah, I think the more, like you said, when you know yourself and when you know your values, mm -hmm. then when you measure things against those it becomes very easy to disassociate with the things that don't fit. Right. But without knowing, it's so hard because maybe both fit for a little while. Right. But, you know, long term, maybe one is the right answer. And right. It's, that was so vague. But, um, but I, yeah, I totally hear you. It's like if you're in L.A. and somebody asks you to drive to New York, you know, you can do it without a map. But it won't, you won't get there as quickly. Yeah. Or efficiently. Or efficiently. Yeah. Although if you don't use a map, you might see a lot of great sites along the way. And but the, again, what's more important? Yeah. Getting there in a hurry or getting there via the scenic route? Yeah. And, and both are valid. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I think both hold water. So right. it's just a... It's, it's fun to see. And I think I love the stage that you're in. And my dad is maybe a decade ahead of you, mm -hmm. I think, or maybe a couple decades um, but it's just, it's neat to see how, how that path to kind of see it in more fruition than where I am right now, mm. um, I think teaches me a lot about trusting the process mm -hmm. <laughs> and not needing to know necessarily how it's going to work out, but, but focusing more on myself and on honing in and really refining those values and right. the things that I truly care about. And, you know, I've had experiences that have taught me not as boldly as yours was, but that, you know, life is fragile and that I don't want to spend time wasting hours for money right. when I could be creating something or building right. something that really matters to me. And I, I feel like I'm 
touching that point where, you know, like you said, if I were to be hit by a bus, I would be very happy with what I'm doing, what right. I'm creating. Of course, I don't feel like my work is done. But, right. like, what a cool feeling that is versus that gnawing inner feeling of, like, I could have done this. I could have been, you know, a great whatever and never knowing. Right. So I think that's, like, part of my big mission is helping people drop that side of just being content and really going after that thing that, you know, if you knew that you were gonna die in a month or whatever, you know, what would you spend your time on? Yeah. It becomes very clear. Yeah. But that's I just I love the example that your life is just as a lesson, as a experiment or a laboratory that I think other people would glean a lot from too. That's why I wanted to sit down with you anyway. Some of my favorite questions and I'm so grateful that this interview has been so easy and you're <laughs> such a good storyteller. Some of my favorite things to kind of wrap up with are, you know, who how do you deal with challenges these days? Like, who would you say is your, uh, I call it your nucleus of support, but where mm. do you turn to when, when challenges arise? That's a good question. I, I have, of course, Nancy is a great sounding board. You know, and, you know, she's been a very successful massage therapist for a long time. She's had a practice for some 30-odd years. Wow. And not every massage therapist can say that. So she doesn't come from the corporate world. So I can lay out some frustration or challenge or problem I have. And she sees it through a very different point of view than yeah. most of my other friends who, you know, have fought the corporate battles yeah. for a long time. Yeah, and they're time. just as in it with you, right. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. So she's been extremely helpful in navigating you know whatever challenges might come up and I have a handful of friends that you know have come from my running days from bike racing days from co-workers or past co-workers and there's I don't know maybe a dozen ish people who I can call and say I have a problem I don't know what to do cool you know if you yeah. if you have you ever dealt with this before? Mm -hmm. Or if you were in my shoes, what would you do about that? Yeah. And and I've learned, you know, no man is an island. That's and although I, you know, I worked that way, you know, I was very um, solitary, very nonverbal, very um, held my cards close to my vest for many, many years. Hmm. And I had a good friend of mine. Uh, once tell me, this was back in the 80s, that he had known me since high school and knew nothing about me. Yeah, And wow. he did not mean that as a compliment. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've worked really hard to try to open up more and trust people and pull people in, you know, without being a drama queen. Because, you know, we all have those people in our lives that everything is a yes, disaster. Yes, and they just feed off of it nightmare. or create it them. Right, yeah. right. And I try hard to not be that person. But yeah. when I do really feel like I need help, um, there are people who I know I can go to. That's good. And, yeah. And I think, you know, cultivating a, a support team and is a two-way street. You have to also be there for that other person. Absolutely. And so sometimes you'll be totally slammed and you'll, you'll be in a different five time zones away and get a phone call in the middle of the night saying, 
I need help. And even though you might not feel like it at the time, you know, you're going to be at the other side of that call at some, some point in time. Yeah, that's a good thing to realize. So, you know, developing a support team that is very much a two-way street, mm -hmm. I think is really important yeah. for anybody. Yeah, I've heard it said that the, the quality of your relationships equal the quality of your life. Yeah, I believe that. So I can see that for sure. Well, tell me, what about, what today are you most grateful for? Um, and I would have to say I'm extremely grateful for Nancy because I think that having a healthy relationship that's really kind of a, I see her as a peer and a partner in every way. That hasn't always been the case in my life. Hmm. And I'm very grateful for that because I feel like, you know, like, you know, we jump in our camper and like a couple weeks ago we went to Moab. That's something like 12 hours of driving there yeah. and back, plus another 12 hours of riding bikes or yeah. 14 hours of riding bikes <laughs> and just with each other. And we actually enjoy that. And you're not sick and, of each other. Yeah, we're end. not sick of each other. <laughs> and that's, in my experience, not that common. Yeah. And so I'm very thankful for that. I'm very thankful for my health. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm lucky to be, you know, fitter than the average old guy. <laughs> and, and when I broke my leg a couple of years ago, it made me realize how quickly that can change. Yeah. And how easy it is to take your health and your fitness for granted. And I think I would tell anyone who's particularly in their 40s to not ever, ever, ever take a day off and yeah. not ever, Don't ever give up. Don't let it go up. kind of thing. Don't yeah. let it go because it's really hard to get back. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then, uh, you know, over the years, there have been a number of people that have come in my life, in some cases back out, but uh, who I've known <laughs> from sports and from work who have become really good, you know, been really good friends and really, you know, part of that support team. Yeah. In you know, kind of different levels of support. Sure. But even look at Deckers, you know, there's, I've never even actually sat down to catalog the number of people at Deckers who I've known since college. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. That's impressive. And it's, um, and I think with people like that in your life who, you know, there's a there's a whole layer of people who we all kind of grew up, you know, look at Jim Van Dyne and Angel yeah. Martinez and Stewart and and there's a, a, quite a few others that, you know, we could spend here all day naming yeah. names, but we all kind of wound up getting into this industry right, you know, within a year or two out of college yeah. when the industry is very embryonic and we all watched each other grow up and get married and have kids and develop careers and have successes, in some cases have failures, mm -hmm. and then other successes. Yeah. And now, you know, we're all 50 or 60 years old, and you look back, and we all did that concurrently. Yeah, which is and quite with an experience. some support from one another. Yeah. And... And again, I, you know, I go to like outdoor retailer or I go to any one of a number of sales meetings 
and walk around the building and it's like a big family reunion. Yeah, I can only imagine if and, you've yeah, grown up doing this all together. And that's very cool to me. Yeah, what a community. What a sounds like a very strong just having that shared experience. I mean, it's just like mm. a family of siblings. You you may grow apart at some points, but because you have that similar parentage, right. you know, you have that bond forever. Right. Um, you can always come back and trade stories of, you right. know, whatever went wrong or well or whatever. Um, well, and I think we're getting close to time here, but my last question for you is what's your definition of living your dance? I think that it's knowing who you are and knowing where you want to go and being true to those two things. And it's, there's a lot of pressure that's very subtle, in some cases not so subtle I suppose, <laughs> yeah. to conform to a variety of mores or cultural norms. And I think that's very insidious and it sneaks up on you. I, speaking for myself, that time when you wake up one morning and realize that you're not doing what you want to do, you, you're, you've become somebody who you never wanted to be, yeah. is not a pleasant feeling. Mm -mm. And I've done that. Me too. So I feel like the best and hardest thing to do is to spend time looking in a mirror. Mm -hmm. Looking at who you are and looking at who you want to be. And then taking steps to get there. Yeah. That's... And, and, and that sounds kind of, I don't know, a little airy-fairy maybe. <laughs> But I think the people who I least like hanging out with are people who avoid self-reflection and introspection. I think you hit the nail on the head right there. Yeah, I agree. There's, yeah, there's just, it's a humbling thing to come to terms with the things you like, the things you don't, mm -hmm. and then to commit kind of to yourself of just, well, then how do I weed through this and, and start to become someone that I actually enjoy or right. am proud of? Right. Yeah, that's huge. I love that answer, though. Thank you. Well, for anyone who wants to find you or work with you, how should they get in contact with you? Should they go to your website? or? Uh, they can go to my website, uh, category1inc.com. Okay. They can find me in LinkedIn. Okay. Lou, L-O-U dot Patterson at okay. LinkedIn. I'm also uh, Cat1Inc, C-A-T-O-N-E-I-N-C at Twitter. Okay. And I'll so, put all of those in the notes okay. so people can find you. Okay. But awesome. This was such a fun time yeah. to sit down. It's been way too long, but I'm so glad we had time to catch up. And Yeah, me too. This was cool. Love it. Love your stories. So, Thanks. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thanks again for listening and be sure to like, share, and comment on the podcast or around social media. Hashtag live your dance and look forward to more episodes coming your way. Have a great day and be sure to live your dance.